Here's something you might not know. Most of us know some Bible stories, but very few of us know the story of the Bible. And what I mean by that is how we got the Bible to begin with. And understanding how we got the Bible is almost as important as knowing what's in the Bible. Because as we're going to see, the backstory sheds enormous light on the story. And who's kidding who? Backstories are also really cool. If we're going to have transferable confidence in our faith so that we can rest easy in uneasy times and share that confidence with our kids and with our friends, with our family members, the extended family members, then we need to know the backstory. Not only is it going to be helpful for us, it will aid us in our mission to break down barriers and open doors for people who are searching, people who are struggling with faith. So we're going to learn the double whammy. We're going to helpful stuff and we're going to have cool stuff because if you don't know the story of the Bible, it's easy to discount the stories in the Bible. Some of you have walked away from faith or you have friends who've walked away. Maybe it's a family member who's walked away from faith. Maybe it's your kids who have walked away from faith. Maybe you're watching today and you, you haven't been to church in a long time. And this is your first time in. Glad to have you. Maybe you haven't told your parents yet or your spouse or the person who invited you that this is what's really going on in your head, that you're struggling with all of this. Maybe you were trying, but you think to yourself, you know what, I just don't think that I believe all that stuff anymore. And it's understandable. Because if you don't know the story of the Bible, it's very difficult to embrace the stories in the Bible. And the problem is, and we're going to talk about this for the next couple of episodes, is that the way that we got our Bible is not the way that the world got the Bible. And by the time you got your Bible, it, it had already been chapter and versed up, right? It had been footnoted. It was in English. All the type was set. There were maps. There were titles. There were headers. There's cross-references. There's probably even a concordance in the back. When you got your Bible, it was all done. But that's not how the world got the Bible. And the story of how the world got the Bible sheds remarkable light and gives us insight into the stories in the Bible. So my first Bible didn't look like this, but this is my super Christian Bible. This is the one that I have referred to for years. My first Bible was red, smaller, and wrapped in genuine imitation red leather. Now, I'm curious, all you folks out in church online land, who had a Bible with your name printed on it in gold? Anybody? Or, or did you have one of the Bibles that had kind of like dipped in gold, like the edges were this shiny gold foil, the metallic stuff? Answer it in the chat feed. If you ever had one of the gold embossed Bibles with your name or with the pages on it, or if you were really kind of upper crust, both of them. Come on, who was the fancy pants with their Bible? Write it down. So when you received your Bible, we were all probably told similar things, right? Somebody comes up and they say, this is God's word. It's all true. Try to live your life by it. And of course, we believed 
what we were told because an adult told us. And when you're kids, you believe kind of whatever adults tell you. And if you're like me, you've always had and held a high regard for the Bible. But the way that you received your Bible is not the way that the world received the Bible. Now, your, your situation may be very different. Maybe, maybe, maybe you weren't given a Bible as a child. Maybe, maybe you went to a church or maybe you had a religious tradition where you were not even encouraged to read the Bible. There are definitely a number of traditions where the people are actually encouraged not to read the Bible, right? Even though it's a Christian congregation, because the pastor, because the priest is responsible for telling everyone in the church what was in the Bible and how to understand it. But regardless of how you were raised with the Bible, the truth is, for most of us, we developed an understanding or a respect for the Bible not based on reading it. Because very few people actually read it. We based our understanding on what we were told about the Bible. Isn't that right? And the stories that we were told. And the stories that we were selectively told as children and high school students and ultimately as adults. But even if you've not been raised in any kind of Christian tradition, even if you've never read a single word of the Bible yourself, you have a perspective or you have a belief about what the Bible is and what the Bible isn't. So regardless of where you're coming from, what happens is this. All of us carry our childhood perspective of the Bible into adulthood. Many of us, for many of us, if the Bible says it, that still settles it. But for many of you, Many of you who maybe even were raised with the Bible, maybe you weren't, but it's just not that simple anymore. Because somewhere along the way, somebody pointed out to you what else the Bible says. The parts that they didn't talk about in Sunday school, the parts that they didn't talk about in church. You may be in a situation where you brought some of those parts to your parents' attention, or to your pastor, or to your priest's attention. The parts that they had skipped over in Sunday school. The parts that they skipped over in church. And now you find yourself having a very difficult time reconciling what you found in the Bible with the reality that you live in. The world that you live in. And you're an honest person. You couldn't just look the other way, pretend it's not there. So perhaps because of what you discovered about or discovered in the Bible, you walked away. Or perhaps you're considering walking away. So regardless of where you came from and regardless of how you were introduced to the Bible, this is a very important series. Now you may be surprised to learn that the story of the Bible does not begin in the beginning. In the story of the Bible actually begins towards kind of the end of the middle the story of how we actually got the Bible begins with a first century doctor who was not Jewish, but Greek. And his name is Luke, right? And Luke actually spent the time necessary to document the events of the life of Jesus. And the reason that he sat down to document the events in the life of Jesus is because he had a friend named Theophilus. 
Theophilus was a first century Jesus follower, first century Christian, and he was like many people in his region of the world. He had heard enough stories about Jesus. He'd had enough uh, contact with eyewitnesses of Jesus' life and Jesus' miracles that he had put his faith in Jesus. But Theophilus wanted an orderly account of how the whole thing transpired. It's a little bit like you hearing about somebody that you have a lot of respect for. And you hear bits and pieces over here. And you read an article over here. You, you've got some of the story and you got two or three quotes. And at some point you say, okay, okay. But tell me the whole story. Put it in order for me. So Luke decided, for the sake of his friend Theophilus, to sit down and write an orderly account of the events of the life of Jesus. This is how that document begins. We know that document as the Gospel of Luke. But, come on, let's not call it that yet, okay? Because that would happen way, way down the road. This was simply a Greek in the first century who's documenting to the best of his ability the life and the works of Jesus. So, Luke Chapter 1, verse 1. Many have undertaken to draw up an account or to document uh, of the things that have been fulfilled or the things that have happened among us. Key part. Something had happened. Worth documenting. And the interesting thing is that Luke says, many. I'm not the only one, all right? I'm not the only one trying to document all this. I'm not the only one that's trying to put it down to, to get the stories down, the events down that actually happened in this region of the world. And this, this you should know, is very unusual. There are not many cases, historically speaking, of multiple written accounts of the same event or the same series of events. In ancient times, we have virtually no multiple written accounts of the same events. The life of Jesus, in some ways like that, stands out enormously, all by itself. And he goes on, he says this, verse 3, with this in mind, since I ha myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. Theophilus was a well-known person, either a merchant or a landowner. This, this part's really, really important, what I'm going to say next, okay? So hold on here. When Luke was writing this document, Luke was not writing the Bible. Luke had no idea that this would ever exist. Luke could not even begin to fathom that 2,000 years after, there would be something that included what he wrote, along with what other people wrote about Jesus and about other things. Luke isn't writing the Bible. Luke is simply creating an orderly account of the events of Jesus' life based on eyewitnesses and based on the people that he interviewed. And Luke, because of the way that he did this, tells us how the story of the Bible began. And the story of the Bible began, and the reason that we even have a Bible is because it became clear to the people who followed Jesus in the first century, when it became clear to them that Jesus was clearly not who he claimed to be. That's when the story of the Bible actually began. Because Jesus claimed too much, too many things about himself. I mean, 
honestly, the guy said some wonderful things. He did some amazing things. But Jesus said too much about himself. And when Jesus was crucified, and, and don't worry, because there's, there's a bunch of extra biblical literature that tells us that Jesus was a historical person, that Jesus was crucified, and he was actually put to death under the Roman Empire. Nobody disputes that anymore. But in the first century, when Jesus' followers recognized that Jesus had been put to death by Rome, it was game over. There was going to be no story. So Luke is documenting something extraordinary that happened in the first century. And, and his story tells us about a man named Joseph of Arimathea, part of the Jewish Supreme Court, and a man named Nicodemus, also part of the court. Two people that everybody in that region would have known. They were famous guys in the first century within Judaism. These two men went to the cross and they took Jesus' body down, not because they believed that he was the savior of the world and not because they believed that they would get their names in a book, but because they had so much respect for him. But because they were so disappointed, because clearly Jesus was not who he claimed to be, Luke says, I thoroughly investigated it. And here's what happened. After he was crucified, Joseph of Arimathea, with a couple of his servants, Luke 23, 53. Then he took it down, wrapped it in linen cloth, placed it in a tomb, cut in the rock, one in which no one had yet been laid. Luke gives us all this detail. And he gives us all this detail because he's a doctor. And he's detail-oriented. And he's trying to write an orderly, detailed account. He goes on, verse 55, the women who had come with Jesus from Galilee followed Joseph and saw the tomb and saw how his body was laid in it, 56. Then they went home and prepared spices and perfumes. Why? They were going to come back and re-embalm the body. Why would someone come back and re-embalm the body? Because Jesus was dead. And everybody expected him to stay dead. And in this moment, there are no Christians. There are zero Jesus followers. There is no church. There is no hope. There are just broken-hearted women and disillusioned disciples that are scared for their own lives. And there's Rome, the eternal city. And clearly, the gods of Rome had won again. And on the other side, there's the temple. And the leader of the temples had won again. And between Rome and between the temple, the Jesus movement had been crushed out of existence. And if it had ended there, there would be no the Bible. And there would be no Christians. And there would be no church. And there would be no, as we're going to see, there would be no Old Testament. And there would be no account by Luke considering and looking into the details of the life of Jesus. This is a key moment in world history. Luke documented the life of Jesus because the story of Jesus did not end on a Roman cross. If the story had ended there, there would be no story. Luke tells us the reason that he was a Jesus follower. The, the reason that Theophilus was a Jesus follower in the first century is because Jesus 
was seen alive. And once he came back to life, his followers came out of hiding and they went right to Jerusalem. They went right to the streets of Jerusalem and they faced down the very same people who had just had Jesus crucified. And they got arrested. And they had to face down the very same men who were, who were responsible for taking Jesus to Pilate to be crucified in the first place. The same men. And Luke documents these early sermons and Luke documents these, what these men said in the face of actually being arrested and being put to death, just like Jesus was. And here's just one sentence from just one of the sermons that Luke documents again, because he's trying to document everything that happens surrounding the life of Jesus and beyond. So Peter, one of Jesus' followers, says to Caiaphas, the high priest, the guy in charge, Acts 2, verse 32, God has raised this Jesus to life. And we are all witnesses of it. We didn't read about it. We didn't hear about it. We saw him. And so the Jesus movement, the church, was birthed. But still, there's no Bible. Luke goes on to document what happens for the next 30 or so years following the resurrection. And he documents it all in another one of his books. It's in our New Testament. It's called Acts or the Acts of the Apostles. And we, we see Luke knew Peter, and he interacts with Peter, and there are conversations between Luke and Peter that are documented. Luke knew John, and there are conversations between Luke and John, and James, James the brother of Jesus. These men knew each other. Luke traveled with the Apostle Paul uh, all around the Mediterranean basin, planting churches, and he documents the rise of the Gentile church as the church became more and more Gentile and less and less Jewish. And this movement called the church would ultimately shape Western civilization. Even the most secular of secular historians acknowledge that Christianity shaped and greatly impacted all of Western civilization. But here's the cool thing, all right? Here's an interesting thing. Here's the thing that you need to know. Luke admits right up front, hey, I'm not the only one. I'm not the only one trying to document what happened in our midst. Remember what he said, Luke 1.1, many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us or the things that happened among us. And the question that we all have to deal with, I mean, if you've walked away from faith or you've walked away from Christianity, I understand I, I know what's challenging. I, I know that if I heard your story as to why you walked away, I'd probably say to you, who could blame you? But even with that in mind, please think about this. Because I want you to come back. Why so many? Why so many? That would be unusual now for multiple people to cover the same event in detail. But then, it was really expensive to write. There's no bloggers or vloggers talking into their phones or their cameras. Most people are illiterate anyway. They can't read it. Why would Luke and why would others feel compelled to document the events that happened in the first century surrounding that city of Jerusalem? And the answer is undeniable. Because something extraordinary had happened. Not something extraordinary was written. 
That would come later. Something extraordinary happened. Something that had to be preserved. Because after all, Peter and the boys, you know, Peter, Peter and the followers of Jesus, they weren't getting any younger. And honestly, their lives were threatened constantly. So several of them sat down, dictated or wrote their account and their experiences with Jesus. The apostle Peter dictated his account to a young Greek man named John Mark. We know this from a second century writer named Papias, who tells us that the gospel of Mark came from the lips of Peter. And Peter was probably illiterate, uh, still a smart fisherman, but literacy in the, the literacy rate in the first century is extremely low. So consequently, he sat down with this Greek guy, and he gave him this story, the gospel of Mark. But let's not think of it as a gospel yet. Okay, this document that we call Mark is short. You know, it's, it's action, it's action. Suddenly and then immediately and something happened over here. It's almost as if. It's like a, 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 like a working man, a, fishing, a fisherman's tale. This is the way it would sound, like just a fishing. It's bottom line, it's event driven. Let's go, let's go, let's go. And again, John Mark is no stranger to history. John Mark traveled with the Apostle Paul. John Mark knew Luke. And he was a friend of Luke. And this document was written in the 50s. So just about 20 years after the resurrection. Luke said several people sat down to document this extraordinary event. Matthew was one of them. We call it the Gospel of Matthew. But before it was called the Gospel, it was simply a document. A document addressing first century Jews to say, trust me. All right? Jesus is the one that we've been waiting for. Jesus is the Messiah. And he leverages passage after passage from the Hebrew Scriptures. All to say, look, all of the law and all the prophets have been pointing to the coming of the Messiah. And Jesus fulfilled so many of those prophecies. Believe that he is who he claimed to be. The church fathers, that's what we call the group of leaders who came after the disciples. So late first century, early second century, these church fathers indicate that there was actually a Hebrew copy, that the Hebrew copy was the original version of Matthew, which makes sense because it was written to Jews. That's his original audience. But then it got translated into Greek, and the version that we have today is the Greek version. And why would a Hebrew document be translated into Greek? Because Greek was the language of the Eastern Empire. And this was not simply a message for Jewish people. This was not simply a message for people in the immediate area, that small region of the world. This was a message for the whole world that the world may know. And so there's Luke, and there's Mark, and there's Matthew, and then there's the gospel of John. But again, we call it a gospel. John wasn't thinking Bible. John wasn't thinking gospel. There wasn't even a thing called a gospel until after these gospels were written and named. They created the genre. John decided that he too needed to, to get out of him this story of experiences that he had with Jesus. So we might say this to John, John, buddy, you're an old man. 
Because the time he dictated his document, he was an old man. John, dude, why bother, right? Others have already written. Most people can't read it anyways. And here's something fascinating. And regardless of where you are with faith, and regardless of of what your church experience has been, I I hope you'll lock onto this, right? John, he's not thinking about this book, all right? This is the furthest thing from his mind. John is simply documenting his experiences with Jesus. And in his document that we call the Gospel of John, he tells us at the end of his account why he bothered to write in the first place. Knowing that other people had written as well. And here's what he said. I don't want you to miss this, okay? It's John chapter 20, verse 30. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples which are not recorded in this book. And I want you to know, this is what John's saying. I want you to know, this isn't the whole story, okay? Not even close. These signs have have witnesses. And by disciples, he's not referring to the 12 apostles. He's talking about the hundreds of people that were following Jesus around from the banks of the Jordan River right up to the crucifixion. And then they showed up again after the resurrection. He said there were many other things that Jesus did that are not recorded in this book. And here's something very important for you to know. When John says that there are events that Jesus accomplished that don't show up in this book, this book is not a reference to this book, the Bible. This book, the way John said, is a reference to the document that he's writing. He says there are many other things that Jesus did that don't show up in my account of the life of Jesus. And then he says something so important. It goes on. It's right in the next verse. John, thir- John 20, verse 31. But these, and he's talking, like these, the ones that I've chosen, these are written. In other words... As I face down, I'm at the end of my days, I, I, I see the end of my life, my faith is still intact, not based on what I see around me, because that's lousy, but based on someone I met and on what I saw. And so John says, I want to speak to future generations. I want future generations to know what I saw, what my hands have handled, what what we experienced, but these are written that you, and do you know who the you is? You is you. You is, you is me. You, you, you is all of us. John is saying the reason I have written this account of the life of Jesus is so that whoever stumbles across this document. Okay, so imagine this. He has spent all this time recording this document, and he has no idea it will, if it will survive a day, a week, or a month, let alone 2,000 years. And then somehow, would, several hundred years later, would be wrapped together with other ancient, sacred documents, all to be called the Bible. He's not thinking the Bible. He's just thinking, I want future generations to know what I saw. I want them to know what I experienced. I want them to know what changed my life, what changed my worldview, what gives me hope when all the world around me seems to be absolutely hopeless. 
This document was dictated by an eyewitness of these extraordinary events that John felt like he just had to tell stories about Peter and Matthew and others. So here's what he said. But these are written that you may believe. Now again, we got to ask the question, but, but believe what? Right? John, what is it that you want us to believe? So now back to us. It's possible that you left faith because well, you know, there's a, there's a lot of presenting reasons that you could have left faith. Something that you read, something that you heard, someone that you met, uh, some church that you went to. You're just not interested. For most people who walk away from faith, do you know what the bottom line is? Maybe this is your bottom line. Maybe you have thought about it. It's going through your head right now. It's good for you. That's fine. But I don't believe it anymore. Now, Here's the big question. What is the it that you don't believe? If you walked away from faith or are considering it, what is the it? I don't believe it. And John, not the Bible. We haven't gotten there yet. John, not the Bible, is about to tell you the only it that really matters. This is so important. This is so clarifying. And this is so freeing. John, an eyewitness, someone who spent time with Jesus says this, but these things that I've written in this gospel, these things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah to the Jews, the Son of God to the Greeks and to the Romans, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Regardless of what you have heard, regardless of what you've seen, Regardless of what you've experienced in your life as a Christian, John says this is the it. That's it. And it's the only it that really matters. The implications of this statement in this document that we call the Gospel of John are just staggering. And here's why I say that, all right? If John's account of the life of Jesus is all that you have. John's account is all you need. If John's account is all you have, John's account is all you need. He said, I've written this in such a way that if this is the only message that you stumble across, if this is the only document you've ever read, if this is the only bundle of stories that you've ever been made aware of, it's enough for you to have confidence that God has done something in this world. That God has done something in the world on your behalf. Because it's John that interrupts Jesus, the conversation with Nicodemus, because he, he just can't help himself. He's so excited. He breaks into the story. He writes that famous verse that most of us grew up having memorized as children, the one that you see at football games regularly. John that says, look, let me summarize it for you. I'm so excited. For God so loved the whole world, the Jewish world and the Greek world and the Roman world and the pagan world, the barbarian world, maybe even the Canadian world. God loved the whole world so much that he sent his son. And I have been eyeball to eyeball with the son of God. I'm convinced that he is God in a body that whoever believes, whoever places their trust in him, who he claims to be, will not perish, will not be separated 
will not be lost to God. But we'll, but we'll begin to experience in this life a different kind of life. And John calls it eternal life. And John says, if this is all you ever hear, this is all you ever need. Come on, isn't that amazing? You know what's so interesting about that? For decades, and you know, honestly, that's not true, for generations, 300, 400 years, people just starting out in faith or pursuing faith have been directed not to read the Bible, but to read the Gospel of John. So some of you might have become Christians because someone said, hey, I just want you to read something. Just check this out. Don't, don't start in Genesis. Don't, don't start in Matthew. Don't read the whole Bible. Just start by reading this one account of the life of Jesus. And in reading the Gospel of John, you put your faith in Jesus. Because John was right. It's all, if it's all that you ever have, it's, if it's all that you ever get, it's all that you'll ever need. Isn't that amazing? How does that line up with what you have heard over the course of your life? 270 years before this book was ever assembled. So that brings us up to about the end of the first century. At the end of the first century, there's still no the Bible. At the end of the first century, there are thousands and thousands of Christians, Jewish Christians and Greek Christians and Roman Christians, Christians in other parts of the world. At the end of the first century, there are thousands of Christians. And there are dozens and then hundreds and then eventually thousands of copies of these documents floating around telling about the life and the works of Jesus. And they are meticulously copied. And they're bundled together. And some people have a gospel. Some people have two gospels. Some people have got three gospels. Some people have got part of one and part of another one. Can you imagine having that? Can you imagine if you were a first century Jesus follower or a second century Jesus follower? Can you imagine how valuable these documents would be to you? Perhaps you would only ever heard uh, the stories of Jesus and then someone comes into your village, someone comes to your town and they says, let me show you something. And then he uncovers. Here is a full copy of John's recollections of his life with Jesus. Can you imagine seeing that? You, you've had a parent or a grandparent maybe who had actually heard Peter or heard John preach and they, and they told you to the, best, uh, to the best of their ability, as best they can from their memory, what Peter and John have preached. And then one day, somebody comes to your town, comes to your village and they say, look, we have an actual copy of the letter that people wrote, uh, Peter wrote. Can you imagine that? And I say that, but honestly, I don't think that we can. I don't think that we can even begin to imagine what that was like 200 plus years before there was ever one of these. There were precious, remarkable documents that gave first and century, first, second, third century Christians a picture of details, quotes from their master, the Savior. Jesus. From the very beginning, they were considered to be valuable and reliable. From the very beginning, they were considered to be sacred and eventually inspired. 
And it's no surprise, and it should come as no surprise, that these very quickly, these four documents, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, were considered sacred Scripture. 270, 250 years before, again, before one of these ever existed. Now, to catch you up, the Roman Empire was very suspicious of Christians, but not because of what Christians believed. It was because of what Christians didn't believe, because Christians did not believe in the gods. Now, Rome could care less, honestly, about who you worship and how you do it, as long as every once in a while you'd throw in a grain offering to Caesar. And, and, and every once in a while, for the sake of the gods in Rome, you'd toss in another grain offering. You could keep your household gods, and you could keep your regional gods. You could even keep your barbarian gods, your Greek gods. And as long as you acknowledged every once in a while the Roman gods, and every once in a while you acknowledged Caesar... That's all they wanted. And that was a problem for Christians. Because Christians refused to declare that Caesar was their Lord. They declared that Jesus was their Lord. And that offended Caesar. And that offended the Roman gods. Now, in the words of Stevie Wonder, the Romans were very, very superstitious, okay? So anytime anything went bad in the empire, and this is true still for today, even in Canada, in, in, in North America, the United States, Europe, wherever you live, anytime things went bad in the empire, they look for someone to blame. Have you ever seen this happen? It, it, it happens, yeah, like all the time, right? All the time it's going on. And when things were good, they considered it the blessing of the gods. Thank you for what you've done. And when things went bad, they assumed that the gods were disturbed. Now, if the gods were disturbed, there was a reason that the gods were disturbed. Why would the gods be so disturbed? It must be the growing number of Christians who don't recognize the gods. And there was a late 2nd, early 3rd century Christian leader and author named Tertullian. And he wrote this famous statement that survived antiquity, and it gives us a glimpse of what the Christians were up against in the second and third century. If the Tiber, which is a river, floods the city, or the Nile refuses to rise, or if the sky withholds its rain, if there's an earthquake, a famine, a pestilence, at once the cry is raised, Christians to the lions! <coughs> that is, Christians were blamed for just about everything that went bad in the empire. The point was to keep the gods happy at all costs and at all times. And the gods demonstrated their pleasure or displeasure through the wonders of nature, through the rains and through the floods, through the river, through victory and war. So from time to time, when things went bad, Christians got too much attention from the empire. And this culminated in the year 303, when Emperor Diocletian issued an edict that resulted in the worst state-sponsored persecution of Christians that had happened up until that time. It was very official. It was very clear. And this edict declared that every single Christian house of worship must be destroyed. That assembly by Christians was illegal. 
that the bishops must be rounded up, forced to recant, and offer sacrifice to the gods and declare that Caesar is their Lord, or else they would be punished by death. And perhaps worst of all, all Christian literature was to be turned in and burned. If you were caught with a piece of Christian literature, you could lose your life. But only after you had watched your wife and you'd watched your daughters and you'd watched your sons all lose their lives in order. And hundreds and hundreds of Christians risked and lost their lives protecting. And this is so important. They risked their lives protecting not the Bible. There still wasn't a the Bible. They risked their lives and they lost their lives protecting fragments of Matthew and Mark and Luke, John, bundles of these gospels together, copies of the letters of Paul and the letters of Peter. The reason that those valuable documents survived through that third and four, early fourth century is because of their confidence that the documents told the truth about something that had happened on planet earth on the first century about the person of Jesus Christ. They died rather than give up these sacred documents. That's the only reason why we have them. Even during that persecution, Christianity continued to spread. And it spread without the Bible. And then political change brought about reform and an easing of hostilities. In the year 324, Constantine the Great became the undisputed emperor of both sides of the empire. He canceled those edicts. He returned property to the church. He allowed Christians to worship freely. And then Christianity, as you know, became the preferred religion of the empire. Then, for the first time ever, this is so important, Christian scholars were able to work in the open. They were able to work in the daylight. And now they could gather together without fear of persecution and without fear of having their ancient documents taken away. They were able to work in the open and for the very first time in history, they were able to bring together this extraordinary collection of valuable, what we would now call New Testament documents. The stage was set for the assembly of the very first Tabiblia, the Bible. But there is so much more to this story. And we're going to pick it up there in episode two of next. God, thank you for the way that you are at work in this world, the way that you have been at work in this world, and the way, again, that we can trust you to be at work in the world in the future. God, I pray that you would give my friends confidence in the faith that they have, that you would stoke the fires of the, of the, the faith that seems to be petering out, that you would engage the mind to look at the truth of what actually happened, the story that actually exists, our story. It gives us life. It gives us the ability to go forward with confidence. For my friends listening and watching today, God, I pray your blessing upon them, Holy Spirit, into them in whatever need they have. Would you meet it now, I pray in Jesus' name.